Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Good morning, everybody. Our microphones are pretty awesome. Sometimes they give us a little bit of grief, but we're all right. We have been in a series on the book of Mark for quite some time, and today we take our second stab at Mark's apocalypse, okay? Now, that's a pretty loaded term sometimes, apocalyptic literature. Sometimes we think of apocalypse as sort of hellfire coming down from the sky and total destruction of the world and so forth, but I'll show you today and mention that apocalypsis, or the word apocalypse, means to reveal. Literally, it's an uncovering an uncovering or a revelation of reality. So all of us in December here are going to apocalypse our presents under the Christmas tree. We're going to open them up and see what's really there because the outer layer looks like green and red polka dots, you know, but there's something true behind that paper. So an apocalypse is, is that. It's not the end per se. It's God revealing something really important to us that we can't see without Him showing it to us. So in Mark chapter 13, that's something I want you to have in the back of your mind as you go in. Now, to start out today, um, because I think that Jesus in this text we're going to read, it'll be the second half of Mark 13, I think that he is trying to, to get us into a mindset, to get us into an attitude, to help us live in a way that makes a lot of sense based on our actual reality instead of living in a way that makes sense based on what we perceive to be real, okay? And I think that the attitude or the, the, the sort of thing he's trying to bring us to, the way of life that he would be instructing, I, I can't think of another place in the Bible uh, that gives a clearer picture of this than where where we were about two years ago in Exodus chapter 12 on the onset of the greatest salvation story in the Bible outside of the cross itself, okay? That's at the Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And I want you to, before we get to Mark 13, I want you to just, this is like in Mr. Rogers, you know, a little make-believe time. Make-believe, if you will, uh, that you're back in that Exodus 12 moment, right before the great Passover is set to commence. You, as a Hebrew slave, have been living in a world where for hundreds of years, literally, your people have been treated like human resources. You are objectified, you're like livestock. You live in a culture and underneath a system or an empire that says you're as good as what you produce and you're a throwaway after that. That's not unlike the empires we live in today. But imagine that you're sitting there living in that way for so many years. Your whole experience of life thus far has been one of slavery. Your grandfathers and grandmothers and great-grandparents have all experienced wretched oppression and slavery. And then this dude Moses comes into town with his brother Aaron. Some pronounced it Aaron. And he came into town and he said, I'm going to deliver this people because God has sent me to deliver this people. And so you're excited and you've watched him do these signs and wonders, if you will, that demonstrate he's not faking. 
He's brought things to bear through the power of God that has come to fruition in front of you, and you're like, I think that this is real. He is, he is genuinely challenging the greatest power in the known world, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Imagine how you feel when Moses comes and he, he gathers all the elders together and he says, boys, it's time. We are going to roll out. Right at the beginning of Exodus 12, he says, uh, on the 10th day of the month, everybody needs to start doing this stuff. And it's preparatory instructions for escaping the, the nation. And he says, you need to do this and this and this and get ready and prepare because after that day, we are going to leave this place. And of course, there's a promised land on the horizon that he's talking about. We're leaving this slavery, he says. God is putting an end to this false Egyptian empire once and for all, and we need to be ready. And we might say to him, well, Moses, when? When is this happening? I think, as I just mentioned, in less than two weeks, specifically, we know the day. And there's some serious things we need to do, okay? And your ears are peaked. You're like, okay, I want to listen to what this guy is saying. How do you feel in that moment? It's a little freaky, isn't it? It's like, geez, I'm so pumped to get up and out of here. And yet, it's into the unknown. And the unknown is always scary. There's a fear involved with it. But what matters to you the most in that moment when he says, now, You've been waiting for this. Now it's happening. What matters to you? Maybe you could ask, what no longer matters to you at all that night before the Passover, the last day in Egypt? In terms of life in Egypt, this is the end. It's the end times of this kingdom that you have come to know so well with all of its comforts and brutalities. I mean, that's a brutal place. They've been killing off the firstborn men, the males, the, or not men. You're not really born as a man, I guess. They're, they've been killing off the baby boys. They've been slaughtering your children for so much, so for a ton of time. You've been living under this, so now you get to break free. What are you looking at now? What is on you, the fore of your mind? Are you just sort of like, oh, yeah, well, that's tomorrow, so I'll just kind of carry on as per usual, meh, whatever? Or do you start to reframe everything you're about and everything that you do? Are you still listening to the taskmasters? Okay. The day that you're about to leave, the next day you're going. The taskmasters are saying, hey, you're not doing enough. More bricks, more bricks. Are you paying attention to them? Are you saying, yeah, okay, I got to still do this and I got to get these loose ends tied up? Or are you instead not listening to the taskmasters of the old empire anymore and now you're listening to the voice of the new leader, the one who's actually going to take you to the next land? Who do you care about at that point? Who matters to you? It's probably not the Egyptian taskmasters or the king of the old world. It's probably the guy who says, you're coming with me. You're like, okay, what do I need to do? It seems kind of like a no-brainer, doesn't it? You're going to pay attention to Moses and his instructions because he's your ticket. He's the one you want to be with. Like Moses, Jesus had entered into a corrupt kind of kingdom, and he said, it's time for this to come to an end. And that's what we saw in Mark chapter 11 and 12 as we come up to the 13, uh, the, the apocalyptic language of Mark 13. He's been at the temple, and he said, this is a false empire. 
You've created a false empire using Bible language. You've created a false empire that oppresses and destroys human beings, and, and you think you're doing the will of God. This now has to come to a complete close. That's what he's been saying so far. And like Moses, Jesus has been revealing to us these little glimpses, these, these momentary sort of glimpses into the kind of kingdom that God reigns over. It's a kingdom of abundance. It's a kingdom without sickness. So Jesus provides bread out of thin air to show this is the kind of world that God reigns over. It's a kingdom where there is no more disease. So he gives, Jesus gives us these glimpses where he heals people. He heals blindness and deafness and sickness of every kind. Not because in his ministry he came to heal everybody in the world, that would have been an abysmal failure, right? He didn't heal that many people. But he did heal the people on his path, and he did do it to show us something real about the kingdom. And it's like he's saying, men and women, children, this is where we're going, this kind of world. This empire around you is going to come to an end. And the first thing that's going down is the Death Star, okay? The empire's going down, and by that he means the temple, the first step in the end of the false empire is going to be the full crumbling of Jerusalem and the temple. And that's where we were last week in the first part of Mark chapter 13. He says this is going to be the beginning of the birth pains. Now, if you're like me or like the disciples, you say, when? When? When is this all going to happen? When is this utter end of the world going to come to pass? And you kind of wonder, why do you ask that question? Why do you want to know when? As a pastor, I want you to think deeply about that. What is it that drives me to want to know that? We're going to keep talking about that here. But I think we're going to see Jesus this morning saying something like this. First of all, I think he's going to say something like, or he's going to remind us, uh, the world itself does not end. You've got to kind of let that anchor in a little bit. I know we're quick, especially if you've been in church for a while, we're pretty quick to say, yeah, 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 we know that. But look at your bucket list and the experiences that you just have to have before you die, and then you'll get a glimpse about what you think is coming to an end. The world doesn't end. God is going to restore and renew it. This is the language of the Bible. So that his kingdom can come upon the earth and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This isn't just escapism to a new place. He's going to bring that kingdom to bear in the world, okay? So this world doesn't come to an end. The false empires that are corrupting and distorting our truth do come to an end as God tears open the falsehood and reveals the truth of the world. So your question is not when will the world end as much as when will the real kingdom of God finally put these fake human empires to rest once and for all? That's a better question for the, human, for the, for the Christian, okay? Because we don't believe God's just zapping the world out of existence. He loves the world that he created. He said it's good. He's going to take out of it the corruption we've introduced. The second of all, and more importantly, I think Jesus is saying, I don't want you to worry. You'll see this today. I don't want you to worry about the timeline. 
that the fake human empires have for collapsing. That's not the thing that I'm telling, I'm not telling you this is happening so that your next move is to deliberate about it for the next 2,000 years. All of the false empires of the world will come to an end. That's going to happen, and it's going to happen in God's good time. So I want you to live in the way that those Hebrews did that night before they were leaving. Expectant, hopeful, paying attention to the real leader, the real leader of the true and the good new world that God had prepared for them, rather than to the false taskmasters of the old world. I think this is what Jesus is going to do in the second half today. Now, I think that that makes sense. You know, So far we're like, yeah, I can see that. That's pretty good. And yet, when we pay attention to the real leader, Jesus himself, and we listen to what he has been saying, we hear him teaching us that the world's going to get real chaotic, even brutally violent. And in that kind of world, here's what you need to do. Love your enemies. And we're like, oh. yeah, that just doesn't have the ring of truth to it. I think if somebody's coming at me hard and they want to take me out, I need to kill them. That's what makes more sense. He says, in a world that will tell you that scarcity reigns supreme, and so you've got to get yours and figure out systems to determine who wins and who loses, that's the scarcity world. I want you to be generous with all of your life. And we say, man, I don't know about that. And I want you to believe in an abundant God rather than what looks like scarcity. And I want you to be patient with people and kind with people, trusting, stable in your trust and faithfulness toward God, not alarmed by all the suffering that goes down, not afraid of losing your life for the sake of the gospel. So so right when we say, yeah, that makes sense to pay attention to the leader of this new world and really want to follow him, then we hear what he's saying and we're like, hmm, I don't know if that makes quite as much sense anymore. Let's go back to the charts about how and when. That feels a little bit better. But I think that Jesus is saying the way to prepare for this next exodus, I think we've seen this in the last year reading Mark. He's saying you have to come and die with me because we're not just going to a different location. We're, being, we're becoming different people, which means a shedding of the old man or the old woman, if you will, a shedding of the old being, and we're becoming new. So you have to, he bids us to come and die with him so that we can truly live. And we say, I like the living part. <laughs> that sounds fair. And then we say, and we kind of craft interesting theological ways of saying, we say, well, Jesus, the cool thing is Jesus came to the cross and suffered and died so that I don't have to. I don't know if that's the Jesus we've read in the Bible. He seems to say you'll have to actually take up your own cross. Not, I get on the cross so you don't have to. He says, I get on the cross to show you how this plays out. We go to the grave. We have to shed the old way because we're being prepared for the new kingdom. And that's, I think, one of the reasons we like to jump into timing. So ask yourself that question in the back of your head today. Why do I want to know the timing? Why does my head just go there? Why do I feel a sense of fear when I think about the end of the world I know? Why do I want to focus my attention on when it will happen more than how to live in these last days? 
of the false empire. I want to get back into Mark 13 now. That's enough of an intro. But I, th- I want to get into that mindset. In the first 23 verses, as I've mentioned, in the first, first half of Mark 13, he's really focused on the destruction of the temple. It's all built around that idea that the, he comes out of the city. The disciples are all stoked about it. They're like, look at how great this city is. Look at how beautiful this temple is. Boy, howdy, this is fantastic. And Jesus says, yeah, this is all done. And then they say, when? What's the sign? And that is the first half of the chapter, sort of answering that question. But you'll see that that question continues to be answered in our text today. So let's read it carefully. And, and then you'll see in our text today that it's not just about the temple. Jesus is going to expand now beyond that to talk about bigger realities that encompass our day even today. So pick it up with me in verse 24 of Mark chapter 13. I'm going I'm to read this in a way where I read sections and, and we'll talk about it, and then I'll read a couple more sections and we'll talk about it kind of as we go through. I tried to figure out a way to teach this easily without doing that, but I couldn't. I figured we just had to sort of converse as we go through. So, verse 24, here we go. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies or the heavenly powers will be shaken. Okay, pause. In those days, after that distress, of course we say, what is he talking about? Well, you can't just jump into this passage. We remember the passage beforehand. And when he's talking about that distress, he's talking, I I think, that he's talking about the fall of the temple. So in those days, following that distress, he's just talked about that with the disciples. That's going to be a time of great suffering or tribulation or distress. Some of your Bibles might say tribulation here in verse 24. It is just, don't confuse that with the great tribulation talked about in the book of Revelation. This is just a word, it's called thlipsis, and it just means trials, sufferings, tribulations, that kind of thing. So in the days that the temple falls... That's what he's talking about. Following when that happens, in those days, then he goes into this stuff. Now, then our question is, what does he mean by in those days? Well, we're going to have to come to that in a little bit because I think it's important. But one thing I would say right up front is I'm going to share with you the way that I read this. I guarantee you've all heard different ways to read this. I think this is a coherent way. What we would never want to do is walk away from this morning missing the burning imperative that he gives to us, which is very clearly uh, stated. So we'll kind of think about these days and those days, but the big thing will be very, very clear, and it's how we live right now. In those days, following that fall of the temple, then all this weird stuff is going to happen. Verse 26. At that time, the people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. So he'll go out to the ends of the earth and then draw people back in. That's an interesting movement. It's not starting in Jerusalem and going out to the ends of the earth. It's going out, the angels will, drawing people back in. Okay, I don't know about you, but if you read this, I think verses 24 through 27 expand beyond just the fall of Jerusalem. 
I think he's talking about something deeper. He's quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 13, 10. And in that day, Isaiah was talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And he used that language of the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Your NIVs probably say bodies. I think that the word dunamis is powers. So don't think of heavenly bodies as like planets and stars. Those are already mentioned there in a different way. When he says the heavenly bodies will be shaken, we're not imagining like Jupiter on vibrate, you know, it's not that. It's the, the, it's, he's saying there will be total disruption in the spiritual realm, okay? And so Isaiah used that same language to talk about this big event of destruction way back, way back in just after Isaiah's day. So Jesus picks up that prophetic language to talk about the end of something. I don't know that we need to take it super literally. This is the way that the prophets would talk about that big collapsing moment. It's the language and imagery that they used. doesn't mean we can't, but you see what I'm getting at. This is, Jesus is saying something major is going down, and more importantly, it's what the prophets talked about, about the last days, these kinds of things would be happening. I think Jesus is saying, welcome to the end times, right now which begin a little bit like birth pains begin. It's the suffering that begins and it lasts for an unknown period of time, and then new life is here. So those birth pains or those tribulations or those sufferings will bring about the full revelation of the reality in this world. And those sufferings are going to hurt you, and they're going to be really, really painful, and yet at the end, new life comes starts with the painful fall of Jerusalem. Those pains will then continue on during these last days. And finally, we'll see the Son of Man visibly present again. And that's what he talks about here. There'll be a day, a final utter end, when Jesus himself is literally present in a way that we can see him. So that is happening. But right now in these last days, great suffering is going down. And that's it. Like Jesus said, his arrival in this world marks the entry of God's kingdom. When Jesus hits the scene at the beginning of the book, he says, behold, not the kingdom of God is going to come in about December or 2010. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Him being the king coming now to start establishing the kingdom. So he's used that language. He speaks about uh, he, he talks as though, throughout the gospel, he talks as though he's living in these last days or in those days. And that's the language. It's kind of cryptic and mysterious, and we would never want to pin it down so hard that we say, I'm 100% confident that I know exactly what this means. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. But we can say, well, the prophets talked about in those days, and Jesus is using that same kind of language he must be talking about being in that time frame right now. And then Joel talks about those days as a time when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon everybody. The Holy Spirit will be poured out, says Joel, upon men and women who will prophesy, upon your sons and daughters, and both will prophesy. He talks about a day that sounds very much like Pentecost, 
doesn't he? And at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter picks up on that. And he quotes Joel, and he says, this is what Joel was talking about. This is the end of time. We are living now in those last days. Now, unlike the Hebrew slave who literally knew we're leaving tomorrow morning, like guaranteed, so wear your traveling clothes to dinner. That's part of Passover, you know. You've got to wear your traveling clothes and take your, your walking stick with you to dinner because you're leaving tomorrow. All of that sort of expectant hope that you're going to that Passover dinner with, I think is what Jesus is trying to bring into our hearts and minds to say, that's how you live right now as men and women who are living in the ever-present last day. He's calling us to be like-minded with other slaves who are preparing to depart this world. Okay. Now, he's also said, remember from last week, don't get caught up in everybody's prediction games. They will divide your churches. They will split your relationships apart. They are not what I have come into this world to get you focusing on. I've come into this world to help you focus on me, says Jesus, your only hope. And I'm giving you really clear instructions on how to live. False messiahs will come in and have you making charts and drawing all your graphs and getting it all squared away so you can be certain that you'll be safe and doing all of that, but they cannot give you what only I can give you. I think that's what he's been saying to us. Don't get bent out of shape about everybody's alarmist nature, but instead be faithful, present, owning the life that God has given to you. Now, that's 24 through 27, so we move now into 28. I think in verse 28, Jesus actually drops back in to the dialogue about the temple. Why do I think that? Well, first of all, he'll return to that image of the fig tree. If you remember at the beginning of the whole temple episode, which started a couple chapters back, Jesus is walking into the city of Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree and he gets all riled up about the fig tree and then he curses the fig tree and the disciples say, what the heck? And he says, it's a picture of what's going to happen to the temple. This baby's going down. So that imagery he picks up again here in verse 28. And I believe he's cueing us to say I'm talking now about what I talked about the last time I brought up the fig tree example. Let's read it. Learn this parable from the fig tree, you know, parentheses, the one I already taught you about, the one we talked about a couple days ago. Learn this parable. Whenever its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. It's very simple, very simple imagery for when the tree starts leafing out, you know that the season has come, okay? Not when you see the leaves coming on the branches, you know that summer is here in either two or four or six months. Try to figure it out, you know. It's like around here. When the pink uh, cherry blossoms all hit the trees and the little flower petals are all over Portland, you know spring is here. You, know, you see what I'm getting at? So it's very simple imagery. And I think what he's saying then is, when the destruction of the temple begins to happen, you're going to know that it's happening. Verse 29, so also you, when you see these things happening, you know that he is near, right at the door. I believe he's referring to that 
to that great destroying power, the abomination of desolation that he referred to in the previous passage last week. And he's saying, you're going to know when this great destruction of Jerusalem is coming because you're going to see an upended power source. Previously, it's the temple in power, the Jewish people in power, the high priests in power, and so forth. When you see these things beginning, the great sufferings he's predicted, then you will know that that has started the destruction of the temple. And then there's the biggest reason I think this is what he's saying. The next verse. I tell you the truth. Some of your Bibles say, verily, verily, I say unto you, or amen, amen, I declare. Something like that. It's, It's Greek's way of really getting emphatic. I swear to you that this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. That gives us a little bit of a problem if Jesus is talking about his ultimate final second return, <laughs> right? Because then he's got an interesting way to figure out what's going on for 2,000 years after this, after these people have all since passed away. You see what I'm getting at? Some can read that generation language as broader for like the people of Israel, and I think that's fair. Except in Mark, he never uses this generation to talk about a nation or a people group. It would be like me standing here and saying, this generation, right here, all of you. We've seen him use this language three other times in Mark, and it's always talking about these people. So I think that what he's talking about in 28 through 31 is he's saying, these things are the destruction of Jerusalem, and everybody, all of you, are definitely going to see it truly, truly, I say to you, he says, not one of you is going to pass away before you see this happen. It's going to happen. You will not. That's the, he uses ume. It's the Greek's strongest adversative. So it's like, if you paraphrase it, I guarantee that you abso-freaking-lutely will not pass away until you see this happen. I mean, it's just a really strong statement that he's making. And then 31 opens it up again. Heaven and earth will pass away. Skies and earth, what you see, will pass away. But my words will never pass away. I think he's referring back to the temple destruction. When you see this happening, you'll know it's happening. And remember from the last passage, he said, run for the hills. And I told you at the close of last Sunday that those who did not get out of Jerusalem suffered greatly. 1.1 million starved suffering and dying. Jesus was right. This temple destruction came within a generation, just 40 years later, 70 AD. The temple and all of Jerusalem were just laid to waste completely. So that's right. In other words, you know that. But then we have this major sledgehammer kind of statement in verse 30. I tell you the truth, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Sorry, the next verse is the sledgehammer. My words, he says, will never pass away. My words will never pass away. I think he's helping us to see what he wants us to focus on and what he doesn't want us to even really be concerned with. I think he's saying to us, there's a lot of words in the world and a lot of people trying to construct a lot of different things they call truthful for you, and all that stuff will pass away. 
the things that I say to you and have said to you in my ministry here on earth are the things that you can grab a hold of. So you have taskmasters that are still whipping you, telling you you're not enough, you need to do this, you can't be happy unless. You need to hear me say to you, those guys are lying. Living in the way that I've taught you to live is preparing for the actual real world that is coming. He's pulled back another corner of that curtain, if you will, and helped us to sort of peer into this, this cosmic level of what's happening, okay? It's just a glimpse. This isn't a big definition. You think about how little information he gives us about, about these end days, you know? I think sometimes we think most of the New Testament is about that, but it's very little, which helps you to see how much he wants us to be focused on it. But by drawing the apocalyptic imagery, if you will, of Isaiah and of Daniel and the other prophets, he wants to tell his disciples and us, you and me, I think, that this fall of Jerusalem is the first step in the fall of the world's facade altogether. The world has always been, it's always been dishonest, our world, about what it's doing to you and me. Our world has been telling us, it's been telling me, that it wants me to have the best possible experience of life. That's what my world tells me. My world says, Ben, I want you to have the best possible experience of life, and here's how to do that. And then my world that promises to give me the best experience of life seems to be the same world that puts all of us in a grave. It's an amazing thing to believe a taskmaster that says, I care about you, Ben. I want you to have the best experience of life possible, parentheses, and I'm also going to kill all of you <laughs> and put you in a grave, you know? I think Jesus is trying to help us see how false this world is. He's coming to apocalypse it, to expose it, to rip the fake covering off of it and let us see what it is. Do you remember how I said at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus sets down to go to his baptism, the, the language of Mark is that when he comes up out of the waters, God rips the heavens asunder. And then the Spirit descends. This is what the prophets were talking about. The Spirit will come, okay? He rips it asunder. You know where Mark uses the same verb again in his gospel? It's at the cross. It's when the veil is torn from top to bottom, torn asunder. This is apocalyptic language in the sense of God is revealing to us what's real. So when the Christian considers the end of the world, he or she will never be thinking about something good ending. When you think about the end of the world, if it causes fear for you, you inherently believe that something good will be lost. I'm just soaking that a little bit. Do I actually believe that something good is going to be lost? And if that's the case, then it's very likely you believe the taskmasters of this world that say to you, we want you to have the best experience possible. Just do this. Just have that. You've believed what they've said and said, shoot, 
man, I've got to get some of these experiences under my belt before the end comes. Because after that, I won't have a chance anymore. I might miss out on something good. Oh, what a great deception that dissolves our souls, my friends. I've suffered from that for much of my life. Thinking that the best of life is now. And so I've got to get mine while I can. Boy, can you imagine? Can you imagine one of the slaves on the night before the Passover? God said, do this and do this and do this and follow Moses. This is where you need to be. And one of the slaves is like, well, geez, if we're leaving tomorrow, I got to paint my living room and I got to lay that carpet down and I got to get this prepped and I got to pick my apples and I got to do that and I got to go. You see, it's kind of crazy. Jesus is telling us that we're living in the end times. Talked about by the greatest prophets in all of history. The coming of the Messiah for the great prophets. They said when the Messiah comes, that marks the beginning of the end. And what has Jesus just done? If not identified himself with that Messiah. The opening of Mark's gospel says, this is the beginning of the euangelion. The good news. The gospel. The gospel of what? The gospel of Jesus, the Christos, the Messiah. Jesus' presence in the world ushers in the beginning of the end. And he says that with his, with his arrival, it's not that the kingdom is yet to come, but it's here with him right now. It's at hand. So listen to these words from my friend Paul Pastor. I got a buddy named Paul Pastor. lives up in the gorge. He wrote a book last year and published it. It's all about the Holy Spirit. It's really good. He's a, he's a profound, uh, he's, he's a very wise person. I appreciate Paul. Here's a couple paragraphs from his chapter, specifically looking at this apocalypse type stuff. He says, the gift of God to every single generation is that they should be the last to live on earth. Every generation of Christians, that is. The gift of God to every generation of Christians is that they should be the last to live on earth. There will come, I believe, a moment of utter end, though the details of that day are mysterious. But that does not lessen the power of this fact. None of us know the day or the hour, and we are still allowed full expectation. The end could come today. The end could have come for 2,000 years of yesterdays. The end could come still in 2,000 more years of tomorrows. It is, I say, a gift of God to be able to look at the sky every day and wonder, maybe today. Every contemplation of the end is a contemplation of the beginning. He makes it so. The Spirit makes it so. He has already been poured out on all flesh, already ended the world as it was. And though he is often hidden, he washes over the world like a wave of lamp oil waiting to be set alight. How does our life change? How does your life change? How does my life change? when we genuinely see ourselves as men and women who are living in the ever-present end of the world as we know it. Many of us just have to admit immediately that we don't see ourselves that way at all. 
I'll take the lead on that admission. So often, the first thoughts of my day when I wake up are what I need to get accomplished today according to the different powers in this world that say I need to be and do all this stuff. I suspect that that's why God's people have historically started the day with a prayer that centers their day. The Jesus Creed is a good place to start. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And you're going to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, and you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. It'd be wise for us to start every day that way. So we start listening to God on the front end as the dawn breaks instead of listening to all of our pressures and taskmasters. But we don't often see ourselves this way. I was made to be hopeful, not for the power of Jesus in my life today, but for the power of Jesus to save me later on. It was fun to pray a sentence or two and think that that's what Almighty God required of me. I love doing that. It's exciting to read John 3.16, but the rest of the gospel is, is a little bit more demanding, you know. I have to bear my own cross. I have to enter into Christ's suffering with him. I have to leave all of my leaven back in Egypt. Why? What does that have to do with anything? It's not that heavy. You see, God gives us weird instructions. Why do I have to do that? To prepare for a new world, I have to give up my old ways. I don't want to do those things. The way of the false empire, well, it was freeing and fun, I thought. It's far more difficult for me to enter into Jesus' real call. Going all in with God is not easy for any honest person. That's a real-life decision. (laughs) It really is. It's not to be taken flippantly. And yet, we do. We do go all in with God. We do, like Peter, say, man, I do not get half of the stuff you're talking about, and I would go somewhere else. But where could I turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. I think that's a picture that Peter gives us. If you're one of those Hebrew slaves, if you're one of those slaves, because it is the last day in Egypt for you, whatever you're doing, it is certainly not trying to keep up appearances in the neighborhood, is it? (laughs) You know what I mean? If you really believe this is the last day, A lot of that stuff you used to do to try to keep up appearances and be significant and show people how awesome you were and all that, you just don't even care about it. That was all part of that old world. You're thinking about the land of milk and honey and where we're headed. You're not thinking about the old social system. You're not valuing things like you used to anymore when you're living as one who's in the ever-present last day. You simply can't take that stuff with you And you kind of already knew that you couldn't take stuff with you. But because because it's literally the last day in Egypt, you're leaving at midnight, it, it actually now doesn't matter to you. You see what I'm getting at? There's always this sense that I can't take my favorite stuff with me after I die. We kind of all say, yeah, I can't do that. Yet we still live as though we could because we still love that stuff. And we need it, and we spend our lives trying to have it and manage it and so forth. But if it truly is the last day in your world, the last day in Egypt, you're genuinely done with it. It's like, I just don't care. This is what Jesus is calling us to. 
That's a last day's mentality. Unchained, losing it all, and not bummed about the loss because of where you're going. The fact that you truly believe the Egyptian order is about to collapse, you're really not worried about it. And you expect suffering. (laughs) You've seen how Egypt rolls. It's not going down without a fight. So you expect that that's going to happen, but you're banking everything you've got on the power of God. You're not getting out of this without the grace of God alone, yes? This is the framework of thinking I think Jesus is inviting us into. You're excited. You're afraid. Everything you choose gets filtered through this idea. This is all ending tomorrow. This is all ending as we speak. What a mood that puts you in. Isn't it freeing? It's freeing. So much of my life I'm chained to the powers of this world, the power of scarcity that says I've got to show that I'm one of the people who deserves to get some of the stuff I need because there's not enough to go around. Scarcity drives me. Certainty. I want to have a certain future for myself and my children, and that drives me. So I'm thinking out, how can I make sure I live in this system just right so I can make my future certain for me and mine? But the last day's mentality says, you know what? Whatever the world has taught me about how to make things certain is dumb. (laughs) It doesn't actually work. Jesus is super smart. And I know he's really not lying because he rose from the dead. (laughs) You know, he's the guy who made it. I'm going to pay attention to him. What mood does it put us in to be in an ever-present last day? What state of awareness and readiness are you willing to live in when you truly believe the ways of this world are going to tank? Who do you listen to? I say you listen to the leader. As the people in your Jewish neighborhood are passing out Moses' instructions, like, hey, everybody, here's what we need to do. You're not like, eh, whatever, goats, lambs, I don't care. You're like, if this is what I need to know, this matters to me more than anything else. He's going to be your only guide to this new world. So if he says, I need you guys to be doing this, you say, absolutely, sir. (laughs) Yes, sir, I will. This is the way I think Jesus is advising us to live right now. And it's a beginning because Jesus has already started to unveil. He's started to reveal. I think in your life you could think about the ways that God has continued to reveal himself to you through lots of unexpected experiences, quite frankly. We know that the apocalypse does not mean zombies and fire and Armageddon battles, okay? The apocalypse means an uncovering, a revealing. Now, there might be some battles toward the end. I think we've got plenty of Bible to talk about that. But by and large, he's revealing to us the truth. So when you see something getting destroyed, taken away, we're not panicking but trusting God. Jesus in this gospel for some 2,000 years has been revealing to us every subsequent generation of Christians He's been revealing the truth of the world to through the gospel. He's been exposing the truth of who he is through the gospel. Everyone he's been doing that to. We are living in the time of God's great revelation. In these days, as all heaven is breaking loose, 
Are you still giving your heart and mind and attention to Jesus? Or are you wallowing in the slavery to the hell of the false empires around us? In these days, as heaven is breaking loose, are you paying attention to it? Or are you still looking back? I think the Bible gives us a parallel to heed here. Just like the Hebrew slave in Egypt who was unwilling to listen to Moses, he or she would have missed that great salvation. However much, let's just say that person is like, cool, I'm stoked, we're finally getting rescued here, that's great. I don't really think I can make tomorrow morning work as far as like leaving because I still have some stuff to do. So why don't you guys go on ahead and then I'll catch up on my own terms when it works better for me. You see, that's kind of, that's, that's like how we want it to be all the time. But I, I think however much they believed in Moses, if that's their attitude, however much they believe, however much they love the idea of salvation from bondage, however much they want to be in the promised land, and they truly believe that it's filled with milk and honey and all kinds of great things, if they didn't listen to God, and if they weren't with Him, then they weren't rescued. They remained in that slavery. The chains to their false empire remained unbroken, and they perished outside of God's life. That's important to remember. So God's call to you and me through Mark chapter 13 is not a call to figure out when the final utter end comes. It's a call to see that we are living each day like it is the night before Passover, staying alert to the words of the one true leader, knowing that those true words of Jesus will remain when a false world dissolves. Let's finish our passage now. Verse 32. But as for that day, I think this is Jesus jumping back into dialogue about the final utter end, okay? As for that day or hour, no one knows it. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except for the Father. So watch out, stay alert, for you do not know the time when he will come. It's like a man going on a journey. He left his house and he put his slaves in charge, assigning to each his work. And he commended the doorkeeper to stay alert. Stay alert because you do not know when the owner of the house will return, whether during the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn, or else he might find you asleep when he returns suddenly. What I say to you, disciples, the four disciples around him at the time, I say to everyone, Christians in Portland, Oregon, 2017, stay alert. That's the burning imperative. And that's not an alertness to the stuff he just told us to stop worrying about. <laughs> that's not scour the internet and try to find the numbers that add up. I think yesterday was one of the days that was supposed to be the end of the world. National Ge Sarah Kugelberg texted me and said, there's a National Geographic article today that says something about why it's not the end of the world or something like that. That's not being watchful. He's not saying pay attention to all that and get your math and add addition and subtraction good. Then you can figure it out if you watch. He's saying be like these people 
the night before the Passover who are alert to the leader, to the real king, who are aware that what's ending is not good and that they're going to a great land of salvation and promise with the true king who actually loves them as human beings who are eternally miraculous, not as human flesh objects who are resourceful for creating things, for making stuff, right? More bricks, more bricks. Why does everything inside me want to gravitate toward knowing when it ends rather than how Jesus wants me to live? I think it's because of what we've talked about all morning. Because we know his call to us is weird and it doesn't make sense half the time. It calls us to the edge of trust, to that place of saying, I don't really like what you're telling me to do, but there's nowhere else for me to turn because you alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus' words, the things that he taught his disciples throughout his time will never pass away. Keep watch, stay alert, live expectantly as though this is my last day in the false empire. This has everything to do with listening to Jesus and abiding in Jesus. And don't ever think that the end of the world is gonna be the end of something that's truly good. It's the beginning of pure goodness. That's what we have our hope banking on. We're running after Jesus, not because he's taking away good things. He's shutting down false empires. Pray with me. Jesus, we think about how you call us into this life with you, and it's, uh, it's both happy and afraid. It's, it's fear-producing for sure, and yet you say to us so often, <laughs> over and over through the, through the Gospels, we hear you saying to not be afraid. God, you tell us to not be afraid of your good life. It's just so unfamiliar to us. The average day-to-day -day way of life in America feels so familiar to us. But as I read this, I, I see such a strong call to step out of the empires of this world and into your good kingdom. So I ask that through your spirit, you would help each man and woman and child in this room today go forth with a discerning wisdom. Help them to be able to see, help us as a community to be able to see where in our lives we're still shackled. Help us to be able to see you clearly, Jesus, so that we can follow you in the midst of a very difficult world. I pray that you would bless every man and woman and child in this room. Give us your strength. Help us to persevere with you. Amen.